Many longtime listeners know that our podcast platform was initially focused on interviews about the spiritual paths that Myanmar offers to meditators and monastics. But when the coup hit, we couldn't in good conscience continue to tell those stories with many monastic sites on fire or occupied by soldiers and the Burmese people living under the military's reign of terror. So we expanded our mission to cover a wider range of post-coup Myanmar stories. Still, some guests have a unique insight into the intersection of the spiritual with the worldly, allowing a deeper understanding of both these planes. Today's guest fits squarely into that category, as you will soon hear. pleased to be joined on this episode of Inside Myanmar podcast with our guest, Aria Bauman, who will take some time to talk about her background and spiritual journey in Myanmar. So, Aria, thank you so much for being here with us. And thank you for giving me this opportunity to share something about my life and my practice. Right. And I, I think there are some listeners out there who know about your, your teaching and your practice, have maybe even gone to your retreats. But I think many, myself included, probably don't know exactly where you came from and how you ended up to be where you were leading those retreats and practicing in Myanmar. So can you take us back to where it all began, to your, your early years and your first inklings of your spiritual quest? All right, yes. I was born in Switzerland in a town called Winterthur. I have two brothers, which are younger than me. Growing up in a loving family, um, my parents were very kind and they took us out into nature, going hiking in the mountains, skiing in wintertime. And I went to school. So my upbringing was Protestant. My mother was Catholic, my father Protestant, and I got the regular religious education at school and at the church. And it was in my teenage years that I started to have these questions about God and the world. And being taught, you know, there is this God, God-loving uh everybody. But then I asked myself, how can this loving God allow so many children in Africa to starve, 
and die from hunger. How can this loving God allow all these conflicts and wars going on in this world? And so with this, I started to read books about different other religions, about different philosophies. And what I also was thinking was that if such a thing like God or a higher power or absolute love really does exist, then it must be something that every person should be able to experience for themselves. And not only some, some special people having an experience of God or this absolute power. And so when reading these books on different religions, philosophies, I came across Buddhist books and there was presented a way or a practice by doing it, one could experience and realize for them, for oneself, you know, what really exists, what is real. And so this made me interested. And with the guidance, instructions from the books, I started to practice meditation for myself. And I also came across a little booklet which had short texts from different religions, spiritual traditions. And one text was, the gist of it was like, when you sit, just sit. When you eat, just eat. When you go, just go. So basically, you know, be present in each moment. Know what you're doing. And with that, I went to the mountains in Switzerland uh, in a little hut. And for one week, I just tried to implement it. Just eating when I was eating, just doing the dishes when I was doing the dishes and so on. And it was only later that I realized that this was actually my first retreat. It was a self-retreat. Mm. And it was a very good experience and that really confirmed that this was the way to go. So I read more books on Buddhist, Buddhism, Buddhist meditation. And later on, you know, that was in the late 80s in Switzerland and, you know, Buddhist meditation was not really popular or available. But after I finished my studies, I was studying at the conservatory in Zurich uh, to become a music and dance education teacher. I worked for a few years, but then I kind of thought, I need to see the world. I need to see what is going on out there. Mm. So I quit everything. And with my backpack, I started traveling. I started going west from Switzerland, meaning first Ireland, then the United States, from there to Tahiti, New Zealand, New Caledonia, Australia, and from there to Asia. And I had heard that in Thailand, there was some monastery where Westerners could go and practice meditation. 
And so I found it. It was Watswan Mok, the monastery of Achan Buddhadasa, at that time a very well-known and famous monk and teacher. And so there I did my official first Buddhist meditation retreat, 10 days. And already after the first day, for me, this was like coming home. Mm. I had found a home. And when the 10 days were finished, I didn't want to leave. It was just like, well, you know, this is the best thing you can do. But, you know, then I left. But then in Asia, in Nepal, and in India, I did more retreats. These were in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition. And with each retreat, it was more like, yes, yes, this is a path that I want to follow, that I want to deepen. Mm. And after two years of traveling, I had no more money. So I went back to Switzerland. I worked for a couple of years, got more money, and then set out traveling again. And in these two years, you know, I was meditating. I had found a meditation group in Zurich. But, you know, my hunger for more meditation was very big. So I went to Asia again, did some more retreats in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition, I did also some trekking in the Indian Himalayas and I met an Australian man. I fell in love and so later on I went to Australia to be mm. with him. Mm-hmm. And he was working, you know, during the week. I was at home, at his home, and I was practicing meditation, you know, all, basically all day long. It was very nice. It was very good. On weekends, he sometimes invited friends and we would go bush hiking. Mm. And one of these friends saw the tanka that I had bought in Dharamsala. And he knew what the tanka was. So he asked, "Ah, are you meditating? Are you Buddhist? I said, yes. And so I asked him, well, do you know if there is a retreat going on soon here in Australia. And he said, as a matter of fact, yes, uh, in about 10 days, a Burmese meditation teacher is coming to teach a retreat. And he gave me the name of the managers. So I called and they said, yes, there is a space free. Mm-hmm. And so I went to that retreat. And by that time, I was not really fixed on any particular Buddhist tradition or any particular form of meditation. And so I thought, okay, Burmese meditation teacher, let's see what he teaches. And this Burmese meditation teacher was Sayada Ujanaka. He spoke good English and he taught in the Mahasi method. And I found it very strange to have the instructions to slow down all the actions and movements mm-hmm. in the day-to-day activities, which is a 
particular instruction in the Maasi tradition. But, you know, I was not aware of that at that time yet because I had done so many different retreats in different traditions in Thailand, in the Tibetan tradition. I had also done a Zen retreat and no, in no retreat did I get these instructions of slowing down. So I found, well, this is maybe for beginners, but I am no beginner. <laughs> I know how to meditate. <laughs> and we had a private individual interview each day with Sayada Ujanaka and we had to report about our experiences in sitting meditation, in walking meditation and in mindfulness in the daily activities. So of course I had not much to report about my mindfulness <laughs> in the daily activities. Mm. And each day he would say, well, try to slow down more in your day-to-day -day activities. I said, with hands in Anjali, yes, Sayado, but I left the room and thought, no, 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 that's not for me. You know, that's mm -hmm. for the beginners. Mm -hmm. And another particular thing was the fact when Sayado Ujanaka gave a Dhamma talk, he talked very, very slowly. You know, like this. And then he was also repeating things that he had said. You know, for me, it was like having said something in green and then the same thing in yellow and the third time in red. So I remember I was sitting there in these stomach talks and thinking, come on, come on, speak a bit faster. <laughs> Because he just talked for one hour. And I thought if he was talking faster, he could say more. Because mm -hmm. what he was saying was good. And then when he was repeating, you know, going over the same thing again, I was, oh, no, no, I have, you know, I know, I have understood, you know, go on, go on, not necessary. And so this happened three, four days. And then the next day when I came to my uh, interview with him, before I could even open my mouth, he just looked at me into my eyes and he asked, do you know why I talk so slowly? Can you imagine in that moment? I mean, all my, my jaw almost dropped mm -hmm. and I figured, How can he know my <laughs> thoughts? Mm -hmm. You know, I had made no comments to him. Mm -hmm. And that was the moment I realized, well, maybe this little fat man knows a bit more than I think he knows. Mm. And, you know, then I had to give my report. And as usual, at the end, he said, please try to slow down more and more in your daily activities. And again, I said, yes, Sayadaw, with hands in Anjali. But I left the room and immediately right there, I started to slow down, mm. walking around slowly, stretching my hands slowly, taking the mm -hmm. cup very mindfully, slowly. And because, you know, I thought, well, this is, you know, only for beginners. But in that moment, I thought, well, at least I should try 
to see for myself if it's beneficial, all the better. If it's not beneficial, if it's not helpful, well, at least I can say I have tried it out myself. And so, you know, then within 24 hours, I mean, it was unbelievable how beneficial that was. My meditation deepened, you know, very quickly. My concentration became much deeper. The mind became clearer. Mindfulness became so sharp and accurate. I mean, I could barely believe it that this was possible by the simple fact of slowing down and being more present, more mindful. And then, you know, in the days that follows during that retreat, Sayada, of course, realized, you know, how my practice took off. And at the end of the retreat, he said, well, would you like to come to my center in Burma and meditate for a bit longer? And I was in a meditative high, you know, and I mm. said, yes, mm -hmm. Sayodo, I'll be coming. Mm. And so he gave me a sponsorship letter to apply for a meditation visa. That was back in 1992. Mm. It took six months to get that meditation visa. But then in September 92, I arrived in Burma. And I had heard that in Burma, it is possible to ordain on a temporary basis. You know, as I've said, I was a music and dance education teacher. So music, dancing, that was my life. And somehow I knew that as a Buddhist nun or monk, you know, you have to follow rules, precepts, you mm. know, which is also not singing, not dancing, not listening to music or entertainment. And so that's why I never, ever considered to become a nun. I could not imagine myself, you know, how to be happy in my life without dancing, without music, without playing the piano. But when I had decided I would go to Burma and knowing that, you know, one has to follow the eight precepts and singing and dancing was not possible, I thought, oh, yes, you know, for three months, uh, which I had decided I would do in Burma for three months, you know, I could put it aside and not sing, not dance. And so uh, knowing that, you know, I could take up ropes for these three months, I thought, why not, you know, to give myself fully to this practice, you know, to make also kind of an outer change, um, manifesting my full commitment to this practice for these three months. And so with that, I ordained. Of course, Sayada Ujanaka was very happy mm -hmm. that I took up this ordination. And so there I was practicing and the three months went by so quickly and it was so interesting the practice the meditation and luckily i you know had not i had left everything in switzerland i had nothing to go back to so i told myself maybe another three months 
but then, you know, I'll finish my meditation and I'll be enlightened or at least halfway through to enlightenment. Mm -hmm. And so I continued. Six months passed, still not yet enlightened, but still the practice was so interesting. I wanted to stay on. So I gave myself another few months and another few months, one year, two years, three years. And after three years, when I took a break from meditation, reflecting on my life, I realized that by that time I had lived without singing, dancing, playing the piano, and I was still alive. I didn't die yet. And what was surprising was to realize that I was actually happier with my life. I was more satisfied. I was more at peace. And this transformation that had happened was amazing to me. Because if you had told me beforehand I would stay there for three years and not sing and dance, I would have laughed and say, no, 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 that cannot be true. But then to realize, well, such a deep transformation of the mind can happen, then it was clear that further transformation, you know, uprooting all greed, hatred, delusion, it's a possible thing to do. The mind can change. The mind can be transformed. Mm. And because I was happier uh, than before, so there was nothing that pulled me back to Switzerland. And so I simply stayed on in Burma at the center. Mm, that's a really lovely story going over uh, many years, going over the transformation and the journey of, of many years. And I think the, the most immediate question I would have is you describe in such compelling and dynamic terms what it was like being a nun in Burma for wanting to extend month after month, season after season, year after year, and how much you were getting out of the practice, so much so that even the things that you were, you were giving up, your relationships and family, and career and music and dance, were all worth it to what you were gaining. I think for those listeners out there who maybe haven't had so much experience with meditation or have understood uh, the what what comes in a long retreat, uh, I, I think there there could be some 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 curiosity or some questions. What what as far as you can describe, as far as words can carry you, which I know are an imperfect vehicle, but as far as words can carry you, how would you describe the listeners out there who haven't had that intensive meditation practice? practice and experience, when you talk about how fulfilling it was, how interesting it was, can you try to break that down, unpack that in some way to bring that experience to people who haven't actually had it themselves? Yes, I will try to do so. So, you know, basic approach in Vipassana meditation is to be mindful of whatever arises in this body, in this mind, and to be present with, you know, physical bodily sensations, 
to be present with an itch or with a pain or with some tension or with heat and so on. And, you know, already on this physical level to be present with these sensations was quite um, amazing because, you know, especially the painful sensations, you know, this is painful, it's unpleasant, and usually we want to get rid of them as quickly as possible. You know, we change posture, we do this and that, we put on warm clothes when it's too cold, we take off clothes when it's getting hot and so on. Or, you know, when it's itchy, then we scratch to get relief from the itch. But, you know, in meditation, you try to be with that unpleasant, uncomfortable sensation and to watch it, you know. You know, first, it's maybe the arm is itching, you know, the, the concept of the arm. But then, as, as I was just being with that itchy sensation, you know, it was not this solid block of itchiness, but it fell into little kind of pieces um, of itchy, tiny little sensations. And then with deeper concentration, you know, it was like each of these little tiny itchy sensation was actually uh, arising and passing away, replaced by the next one, arising and passing away. And going further into this, you know, all of a sudden there was just this tiny little sensations which felt itchy, but there was no more arm. You know, the concept of arm had gone, but these sensations were there. This is what was happening. So, I mean, you know, having grown up with this body and, you know, having used it for moving around and also dancing and so on. So, this gave a completely new view on the body, on this physicality. Or else, you know, with the itchy sensation, as I said, usually one would scratch to get relief. But, you know, one can stay with the itchy sensation, observe it, see it become more intense and then, you know, getting less intense and then actually observe it, how it goes away, how it dissolves how it is not there anymore, completely gone. And, you know, this is happening without itching, uh, without scratching at all. So to see how these sensations come and go, arise and pass away. So on this physical level, to realize that this seemingly so solid body is not solid at all. It's just this flux um, of tiny little sensations arising and passing away in quick successions. You know, maybe people uh, understand, you know, it's like pixels, um, tiny little things that are in a constant process 
And because this is happening so fast, it seems so solid, so firm. But this is only on the surface. And so with the meditation, um, mindfulness and concentration and you know, looking uh, carefully, this is like a microscope or becoming like an electronic microscope to see more and more deeply into the true nature of this body of physical processes. On the level of the mind, also so many interesting discoveries, experiences, to, you know, to see thoughts coming and going, emotions, you know, arising, getting intense, trans changing into something else. And by simply being present and observing them, also seeing them, how they dissolve and they're not completely gone. So also to see that this thing called mind is also something very fluid in constant um, process and to see there is no solid core you know there is not this thing called mind it's not a substantial entity that is located somewhere but it's this, this process, we you know, that happens because of sensory impressions. What I see, what I hear, you know, then this causes thoughts and mental images and emotions to arise. Mm, right. Thank you for that. That's as close as we can probably get to those that haven't had the experience themselves when reality and the mind can start to be observed in a more subtle nature and understanding and transformation starts to take shape. As you're going through this intensive process yourself, extending longer and longer in a country you'd never been in before, and while wearing the robes of a nun, so having to follow this strict set of, of discipline now and rules, as fascinating and as interesting as you found this process that you were undergoing in this intensive silence in Myanmar, you were also having to give up a number of things. You give up things by nature, uh, geography and space, that you weren't physically with things that were familiar, whether they were food or family or relationships or career opportunities, as well as having to give up things by virtue of the robes you were wearing and the rules you now had to follow as a result. So as as much fulfillment as you were getting from the actual practice, how this was really one of your first opportunities, I suppose, that some form of greater overall renunciation. Uh, so at this time, as you were you were experiencing this renunciation, no matter how much you were getting in return, how were you dealing with letting go of those things was it was it hard was it was it a natural process uh was uh was did, did it uh did it just flow organically well, overall with the 
process or were there some fits and starts? What, what was it like having to, uh, as, as months went into years, to, to work at pronouncing some of these things, that uh, these familiar human uh, activities that, uh, that, that you had grown up with as you were now engaged in this practice? Yes. As you say, you know, some of the things were just a natural outcome of the practice that I didn't have to give up things, but they just naturally fell away, like the singing and the dancing and the playing music. Um, other things, you know, to give up my friends and family in Switzerland, not being close to them, that was not so hard. I kept some contact with some friends and family via letters. At that time, there was no internet yet. So writing real letters, which took about two weeks to get to Switzerland or from Switzerland to Burma, sometimes they got lost on the way. So that was a little bit hard. Um, to give up my, you know, the food that I was used to from Switzerland, that was also not so difficult because the food we got at the center in Burma was actually very nice. Um, the only thing that was a bit, that I had to get used to was that it was rice for every lunch. <laughs> you know, every meal, every lunch was just rice and vegetables. Um, you know, we could choose vegetarian food or non-vegetarian food. Um, and it was, it was interesting that most of the foreign meditators at the center, they were vegetarian. And most of the Burmese meditators, they were non-vegetarian. So the Burmese kitchen is not really like um, a vegetarian kitchen, not like in India. But you know, we got good vegetarian food. Um, as I've said, um, you know, when I was younger with the family and later on with friends, I went hiking in Switzerland, the mountains, or skiing in wintertime. So these outdoor things I missed. You know, in Burma, I did, I could not even leave the center without asking for permission to go outside. So that was a bit strange, you know, as an emancipated Western woman to ask for permission <laughs> to go out. <laughs> that was a bit special. But, you know, I just put up with that, not being able to go for hikes, to go outside into nature. It was only later on, you know, after 10 years in Burma, when I started teaching, going, you know, either to Europe or to Australia to teach retreats, then I would take the opportunity um, to go hiking a bit with my friends. And that was a very nice change or opportunity to do so, which I really appreciated. And as the years went by, 
you know, whenever I went to the West to uh, teach retreats, I would also always take some time uh, for hiking to go out in nature, which for me was just another form of meditating or being mindful and, you know, hiking, walking and, you know, hiking in the mountains, going uphill, um, breathing, you know, and get being aware of your breath as you <sighs> panting, you know, up. So, you know, for me, that was always just kind of to do applied walking meditation out in nature. And I thought, well, and well, it is, it's also good for your health, you know, that was something I was very lucky in all my years in Burma. I, I didn't get sick many times. You know, other people, Westerners in Burma, they had much more problem, you know, digestive problems or other problems. But my health was quite robust. I stayed quite healthy throughout all these years in Burma. But I think, you know, after the first 10 years, when I uh, took the opportunity to engage in some physical exercise when I was in the West, that also helped um, to, to keep my health strong. Um, one aspect where I really had to let go was the rope. Well, was you know, my lay clothes or having to put on the robes. And in Burma, the nuns, they wear pink. You know, the blouse, the upper robes are pink and the longi or sarong, orange. And these two colors, pink and orange, first of all, I thought they do not really match. They do not go well together. And these are the two only colors I was never wearing in my life as a lay person. You know, so I had to wear these colors I really didn't like. But, you know, that was a very good thing to, to notice how much I had identified with my clothes, you know, of who I was with my clothes, the style of clothes, the colors of the clothes I was wearing. And so to let go of this aspect of identification, that was a very, very good lesson. You know, to let go of my hair, to shave my head, that was less dramatic. That was less kind of giving up. Um, actually, Quite soon, I started to enjoy to shave my head every week. It was very practical. You know, you don't have to worry about your hair and you have to, don't have to wash it and then it comes out of form, whatever. So that aspect, I thought, oh, that's really helpful. That's, that's easy um, to do. So as you see, so, you know, most of the things kind of naturally happened. It was a natural process of just shedding things that were no longer really important in my life. 
and a few things, you know, that I had to let go of and just adjust to it. Mm, right, right. I, I, this was such a big transformation in your life, uh, this, uh, this move to Burma and what it became. And so I think it's worth looking at from these different perspectives and memories. And we've been talking a bit about you as the subject and about your your inside your mind and your practice and your habits. I want to broaden the focus and look at the context in which you were in, your interaction with Burmese people, with Burmese Buddhist culture, with the with a Burmese Buddhist monastery and teacher that you were interacting with. I know that since this fateful trip, you've had three plus decades of uh, deep meditative and Buddhist interaction with all aspects of, uh, of society and the monkhood and everything else. So it might be difficult to remember those initial impressions. Uh, just had so many memories that have felt since. But as far as is possible, I wonder if you can recall uh, any scenes or imagery or feelings or encounters or anecdotes that from that initial time when you were there, when you were entering what was at that time more of a foreign culture and trying to, to understand it and to be influenced by it and to develop friendships and relationships and as your practice was blossoming. Uh, what do you remember now when you look back and think about those first few months or even years of your experience uh, living in Myanmar, interacting with Burmese society? What struck me kind of uh, first was the fact that in the meditation center, the monastery where I was practicing, and, you know, with me, there were many other, you know, Burmese people, Westerners practicing, and, you know, the hierarchy that existed, like uh, the Burmese people, meditators when they were listening to a Dhamma talk or when there was a celebration going on where we foreigners also participated. In front there were the monks, then behind came the men and then the nuns and then the women. And so when I saw that, you know, <laughs> my mind went rebellious and thinking, you know, how come that even laymen sit in front of the nuns? You know, this is not fair. This is not just, I mean, how come, how can they do that? And this was something that bugged me quite a bit. And in my meditations, you know, I thought this needs to be changed, you know, I mean, nuns behind the men, you know, putting the men higher than nuns, you know. Um, and I thought, you know, what to do, how to do. And, you know, in my, when I took little breaks of my intensive meditation, I went to the kitchen to help prepare the food or dessert. And so I started to pick up Burmese. That's how I started the Burmese language. And with that, you know, I got a little bit more uh, more insight into Burmese society, Burmese culture. And later on, um, when Saito Ujalaka sent me to the newly established forest center in Mobi, about 30 kilometers north, of Yangon, 
Um, he sent me there to be the translator for foreign meditators because the Sayadaw there, the teacher, did not speak English. And in the meantime, I had made contact with a Burmese woman. She was also a meditator at the center. Her name is Mimi. And she had also invited me to her home, to her family. And so with that, I got more insight into Burmese culture, society. And so then I kind of realized that, you know, I had this thought, well, now, you know, coming out of intensive meditation, um, I have to change Burmese society, you know, uh, put women at their place, you know. But then I realized how, you know, can I, as one single Western woman, change a Burmese society that has grown into this way for centuries, you know, this needs a bit longer to, you know, transform a society. But then being in the position of being the translator for the foreign meditators at the Forest Center, I was also the manager for these foreigners, taking care of them and giving little instructions and things like that. And so I had to arrange the interview list for the foreign meditators there. And so there I used my position and for the interview, you know, that was the same for the Burmese yogis. When there is interview first, the monks, then the men, then the nuns, and then the women. And so for the foreigners, I put the nuns first and then the women and then the laymen and then the monks. <laughs> so, you know, there I had some influence. I could do something. So at least, you know, I did a tiny little thing, you know, but, you know, mm. I just did it. And the Sayedo there, Sayedo in the cup, he never made a comment or asked why, why don't the monks come first? He just accepted. <laughs> so, you know, this was, um, yeah, something that uh, in Burmese society that I really noticed and that I didn't, didn't find just or right. Another thing that struck me was the kindness and the openness of the Burmese people. And also the fact that Burmese people understand the importance of the Dhamma practice. You know, they really see it as the best thing you can do with your life. You know, in the West, and especially like in the 1980s when I started to practice meditation for myself, or even a bit later, you know, if you would mention you're practicing meditation, people would look a bit strange at you and think, well, you know, what is wrong with your life? Um, but in Burma, you know, there is just this, this knowledge and this understanding, yeah, that the practice of the Dhamma, that's the best thing you can do with your life. Mm-hmm. And in a very um, helpful way, um, 
this happened when my parents came to visit me to Burma. After two years of staying in Burma, I had invited them to come and visit me. And they were very happy because, you know, they didn't speak English and they would have never have traveled to Asia on their own. But with me being there, they came, we hired a car with a driver and drove around to see, you know, the pagodas and monasteries. And me being uh, a nun, and, you know, I, I'm quite tall, taller than most of Burmese people, having fair skin. So whenever we went to visit a pagoda or a monastery, the Burmese people, you know, they would spot me, come up to me with hands in Anjali saying, Ah, oh, Seale, how good you are, a nun, how, how lovely, where do you stay? And then mm. I told them, Ah, oh, yes, Sayada Ujanaka, mm. we know him, or we have also practiced before, or, oh, you know, this is really the best thing you can do with your life. And then I said, you know, and this is my mother and this is my father. And then they turned to my mother, my father, still with hands in Anjali and saying, oh, your parents, you are the luckiest parents in the world because your daughter is a nun. <laughs> she is doing the best thing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, my parents, they were quite kind of accepting and open to what I was doing. I was always doing a bit unusual things you know, even before going to Burma. And, but, you know, becoming a nun and shaved head was a bit stranger than the other things I had done. But so, for one month, being in Burma, almost every day, they heard the same comment. And with this, they came to see and understand that what I was doing was not some weird, outrageous thing. And they saw, you know, I was not kind of trapped in a sect, but they really understood that what I was doing was something that people would respect a lot. That was something mm -hmm. good I mm -hmm. was doing. And so re this really helped my parents, you know, to, to, to see and more deeply understand that I was doing something very good with my life. And actually, later on, when I started teaching in Switzerland, when I arrived in Switzerland, um, and, you know, the, my, a friend of mine, or I, I told my mother, you know, at the newly opened meditation center in Biartenberg, I would teach a weekend. So when I got to Switzerland and I would stay with my parents to get over the jet lag, then my mother said, and you know what? I and dad, we have registered for your retreat. <laughs> and you know, wow. that was the most beautiful thing that could have happened. You know, mm. I never kind of urged them to practice meditation or whatever, mm. but it was their decision to come and attend this retreat. So, you know, the fact that in Burma, the practice of med meditation is really respected and, you know, understood 
understood as something very precious. This makes Burma so special. You know, practicing in the West, it's okay. But to practice in that field, you know, of the Burmese Dhamma, where there is so much understanding about the value uh, of it, makes it so special uh, to practice in Burma, I find. And many people who have come to Burma have uh, felt the same. Mm, that's, that's wonderful. Uh, I, I want to go back to what you said a bit earlier, your initial impression, just the discomfort with the, the female role of monasteries, whether nun or lay meditator in terms of the, um, the seating and other such arrangements. And you were giving your perspective as a, as you described yourself, an emancipated Western women, woman that was, uh, that, that found this all quite shocking and, and something you had to sort out in your own, your own comfort and, and life there. Uh, right after that, you mentioned how you, through your friend Mimi and through other developing relationships, you got to, uh, to, to be more close and intimate with a number of Burmese people and families and learn more deeply about uh, how they saw things, how they integrated their way of looking at the world. As you develop these friendships, did you also talk to them about some of your concerns or discomfort with the role of lay women meditators or nuns in monasteries. And I'm wondering what, as you develop these friendships, they likely would have confided in you or shared their own feelings or perspectives in ways that maybe they wouldn't be so outspoken in greater Burmese society. So as you started to make these deeper friendships and understand the Burmese perspective on on these gender roles and, and issues, especially as it pertains to monastery life, what did you find their views were? Did they share your concern or discomfort, or did, were they looking at it another way? That was a bit saddening to me, you know, when I started kind of to talk to some of the people about these issues, I noticed that for them, this was just the way it was. You know, for them, it was not something that needed really to be changed, or somehow they just, you know, resigned into their position into their role. Um, it was only, you know, as this friendship with Mimi developed that she gradually started to realize, you know, that this role that women or nuns um, have to take in Burma, that this, yes, was was just very Burmese um, or very cultural, you know, with Mimi then also being able to travel with Sayadaw in the car and coming to the West and really experience how it is in the West. Uh, so she started to change her perspective and she started to kind of take her place, you know, being strong and, you know, not being shy only because she's a woman, you know. Um, so that, that made me happy, you know, that at least with her, I could kind of strengthen that awareness a bit. What I also noticed and what also saddened me a bit was that, you know, as I said, 
I was becoming the translator in the Forest Center and then starting to teach. And in Burmese meditation centers, you know, basically it's the monks that teach. Mm. And so then me gradually growing into a teaching position, you know, that was quite unusual, you know, as a nun, as a female being. And, but in a way, you know, um, I thought at least, you know, this can happen. Um, although it was me, a foreigner, maybe that facilitated the whole thing, you know. I don't know how easy it would have been for a Burmese nun, you know, with the same kind of experience and ca capability um, to grow into such a position. Of course, you know, in the nuns' monasteries, there are nuns that teach, you know, and teach meditation, teach the Dhamma, and so on. But in a mixed place, there it's very rare that, you know, Burmese nuns teach side by side with the Burmese monks. But, you know, Sayada Uindakan, to whose center that I moved in 2006, he is a quite open man. And the fact that, you know, since 2015, we teach a special metta meditation retreat in Burma, and it's Sayado Uindaka, my American friend, Nan, Ayaviranyani, and myself as a laywoman. So, you know, that Sayado allows the two of us women, none, to teach uh, mm. along with him is quite unusual. You know, maybe Sayado Ulakana, Chasma Sayado, has done the same thing with mm. Carol Wilson or uh, Michelle McDonald teaching uh, together with him. So, you know, it's possible, but still, I would say, the exception. So I would like to, you know, to see more nuns, especially, you know, Burmese nuns or even laywomen to uh, be in the position of being teachers, especially mm -hmm. meditation teachers. Right. And the course you reference, we should add, is one of the most sought out retreats of the year in Myanmar, at least before the coup, before the pandemic. It was a retreat that sometimes would fill up within 24 hours of it being announced and having uh, having having a sign-up sheet, a registration sheet that, that people would indicate their preference and wanting to go to. So it was definitely something that was highly appreciated. Uh, I, I also want to come back to when you were there in the early 90s, and we're talking about the role of women, of lay, lay female meditators, of, of nuns, of meditation teachers, within that more conservative Burmese Buddhist society and how you were reacting and responding. Of course, this, uh, this feature of Burmese society at the time is one, is but one of many unfortunate features of, of a period where you were living for decades and this was not a free country. This was not a free society. 
this was a place where within the monastery walls, you were practicing trying to reach a spiritual liberation. And outside the monastery walls, there was very little mundane liberation, if you will, to speak of. There was very little political freedom or, or human rights at that time that that existed while within this was the highest spiritual aim. And again, being a, a progressive Westerner with certain values coming and, and dedicating yourself to this practice, seeing the... The, the challenges that the women were facing, but then seeing the wider societal uh, challenges and uh, bringing in your own your own thoughts, your own values, and then whatever form of engaged Buddhist practice you, you would go to take on, however you would define that for yourself. In those early years before the transition of the 2010s, uh, what challenges did you have? What care did you have to take? What, what was the balancing act required to try to stay there for the Dhamma, to try to learn and teach spiritual teachings, and yet acknowledging and aware of these far greater societal problems that these teachings were, were so to speak, housed in? This was another um, aspect that really made my heart sad because, you know, coming from Switzerland, a free country, democratic country. So coming to Burma under military dictatorship, um, you know, the first three years, I spent most of the time, you know, intensive meditation practice with little breaks in between. Um, but then, you know, um, being in charge of foreign meditators. Um, talking more to people and especially my friend Mimi. So I noticed, you know, that basically in the monastery meditation center, nobody spoke about politics. So one day I asked Mimi, well, actually, what do you think about, you know, the military or who governs the country and she just put her finger in front of her mouth and said Shh, mm. we cannot talk about this you no. know even in the monasteries meditation centers there are spies mm. so we have to be very careful yeah and that was it um you know and so you know, not to put Burmese people into danger or, you know, difficult situation. I simply did not ask any further. You know, I didn't want to put them into danger. But one um, um, uh, amusing um, episode was in the forest center in Mobi. At one time, an American woman came to the center and she said that she wanted to practice meditation for five days and she had said that she was a journalist and that she had kind of the permission from the Burmese government, the military, to travel around in Burma. So, you know, we settled her in, gave her the instructions and so she meditated Sayadaw um, then told us later 
that on the same day, two Burmese men came also to the center in order to meditate. But somehow, the, the Sayadaw knew that these two Burmese meditators were spies. So they had to come and observe this American journalist. And so they had to follow, you know, the schedule, get up at 3.30 and meditate all day long, sitting, walking, sitting, walking, and so on. And apparently in one of the interviews, the, one of the Burmese men then said, oh, and in the sitting meditation, you know, there is so much pain, you know, the back hurts and the knee hurts and oh, it's so difficult <laughs> and apparently the Sayadaw, uh, he just made a comment, something like, oh well you know, it's easier to observe others than to observe what is going on in your body and mind <laughs> wow <laughs> And then, you know, when the American journalists left, of course, these two men also left on the same day. But, you know, that made me even more aware. Yes, I, we, my Burmese friend, we have to be careful of what we say because there are eyes and ears everywhere. And so, mm -hmm. being in Burma, um, you know, at that time, no internet yet. So, I did not really know what was happening on the political level. You know, it was when I went to the West, you know, that people would tell me, you know, this and this um, is happening in Burma. Right, I, I see. Uh, I, I want to jump ahead a little for a moment. I, I, I do want to go back and look at the, the, the spiritual journey that you described starting. Just want to telegraph for the audience the two different planes we're trying to work with. We And they, they do cross over, and yet they have their own paths and trajectories. We have your own spiritual journey and experience growing from being a lay meditator to a nun to a teacher. And yet, this is also happening simultaneous as the the political reality and um, the nature of society and government is changing over the course of years and decades while you're living there. And while we're on this topic, I, I want to jump ahead to the transition period. And as you had spent so long, almost 20 years, or perhaps about 20 years exactly, in the country before the transition happened, you really had a front row seat to what it was like trying to practice Dhamma, to teach Dhamma, to be on a spiritual path as so much in society was unsafe and unstable. And then in the 2010s, we saw an opening, a partial democracy, an attempt, a fits and starts of trying to create greater democracy and stability that hadn't been there before. Uh, I'm just wondering, from your perspective, as you were around during that time, how did and, and I know that your perspective is not one of political or society or worldly life, but certainly the the life of the world does bleed over beyond the walls into the walls uh, and into the monasteries and nunneries and meditation centers. And so, as 
you you continued with your practice and your teaching, and yet society around started to change. Did that impact what you were able to do within the monastery and the courses? Did that change in society result in any change within the monastery walls as well from your perspective and experience? This opening, this change that happened politically in Burma or Myanmar did bring more um, how would I how, how should I say you know the Burmese people that came to the monastery, to the meditation center, either, you know, to practice meditation or donors offering a meal, making other offerings to the center. That changed quite a bit. You know, whereas before, people were dressed very traditionally. The men in longi and shirt, the women in their longis and their angies, their blouses. Um, you know, just that. But then with the opening, you know, young people started to come come for uh, a meal dana in jeans and kind of Western style clothes, even dresses and the hair uh, changed. You know, young people started to, to dye their hair. You know, the black hair was dyed blonde or white or kind of henna brown, whatever, um, you know, handbags were kind of Western style handbags, sunglasses, Western style sunglasses. And later on, you know, they were bringing in their mobile phones. So that was quite a change, quite a difference. But what I found quite heartening was to see, you know, even these young people dressed in more or less Western style, but still they were so respectful, you know, of the nuns, of the monks, doing their bows, helping, being very kind, being very polite. So that was, that was kind of nice to see, you know, the outer form changed, but kind of the values they stayed. Mm. Um, in regard to, you know, the practice in the center, I mean, that stayed more or less the same. You know, the practice of meditation is just the practice of meditation. You get up at 3.30 and meditate all day long until 9.30 at night. Um, you know, like with the opening up of the country, you know, also getting more Western material things. So, you know, there was some luxury things like having warm water, a hot water, hot shower before, you know, it was just the cold water all the time or to have fans later on to have air conditioning in some of the rooms or meditation halls which were not there before um, more kind of western like food uh, was available in Burma and so donors who could afford it you know they would bring 
buns or kind of hamburger, hamburger-like uh, things, or Western kind of cakes. That was, you know, for Burmese people, that was a big thing. For me, um, you know, that was nothing special. And, you know, the Burmese version of Western cakes was, at the beginning, not really good. Gradually, you know, with the years, they caught up. And, um, you know, they did quite a good job uh, in regard to kind of Western food available in Burma. But, you know, I like Asian food and so, and the Burmese food. So I was happy with that. Mm, right. I, I know for me during that time, as I lived there, I, I, I was surprised by how much the opening of society had a kind of proportional opening in the Dhamma world as well. Uh, personally speaking, be, being able to take pilgrimages with um, groups of Westerners, you know, 20, 25 meditators going to a remote monastery to pay respects and meditate that could happen. That didn't arouse suspicion. It, 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 one was doing what one says one said was doing, going, going to meditate and to learn about uh, monastic uh, practice in a remote place. And there was no suspicion otherwise during that time. Uh, I, during those years, I spent several of those years writing and researching a kind of meditator's guide to helping practitioners come and knowing uh, where to go and what the different traditions were. And just simply being able to undertake that research is something that I never would have attempted before uh, because research of any kind is going to be suspicious that that research is going to pour into another uh, secret um, underlying thing that one is trying to report on, whether that's true or not. So just the opportunity to freely be able to go to places and ask questions and and learn about the different traditions and histories of places and, and then tell uh, foreign meditators and practitioners about this so they could also appreciate and, and, and visit and pay respects to those places. That was something that, for me, never could have happened. Um, the process of researching and publishing and bringing pilgrimages to certain sites it just simply couldn't have happened before. And, uh, and then also just being the, the experience of being able to go to more remote places and, and not be suspected as something, to go to those remote places truly as a practitioner or a monastic that those for me and some of my other uh, meditator friends at the time, those, those opportunities opened up. I was particularly struck, uh, these are my experiences I should say, but I was particularly struck by talking to one monastic teacher who referenced in, in his experience this monk referenced actually seeing a change in the Buddhist teachings, teachings and lessons he was giving and the students that were coming, that he actually saw a growth of critical thought and of being able to talk and debate openly about their understanding of Buddhist concepts, nothing about politics or anything else, but simply that they felt a greater freedom in other aspects of life. They also felt freer in being able to intellectually explore Buddhist teachings and 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 to to discuss them in more depth than he had seen before the transition, where he saw it characterized more by rote memorization and not questioning the authority and just doing doing what was told over and over again, rather than exploring it with with their own critical mindset. And 
So just the opening in society outside the walls, he saw within the walls, people were carrying that similar kind of mind of investigation. So I was, uh, uh, and, and also I, now that I'm thinking about it, more examples are coming to mind. I, I recall a, um, a Burmese Buddhist podcast guest I had on here who explained that before the transition, when uh, many monasteries were were uh, were not well taken care of, they were not well maintained. They didn't get adequate food or maintenance or anything. But it was impossible to be able to 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 ask for donations or explain what the donations were for because it would be seen as shameful that a Burmese Buddhist society led by these dictators, these military dictators, that there were so many monasteries that were in in these these needy states and so rather than try to fix the problem or or create a more equitable society or uh, even try to raise donations the problem was simply solved by not talking about it and pretending it wasn't there and he relayed how after the transition there were so many monasteries in his region that he saw that were now able to get more donna more donations simply because they were able to be honest with describing what the needs and the problems were that that just simply couldn't be talked about before because it would be shameful for those that were supposed leaders. So I, yeah, I, I, I really was amazed in my experience and then in talking to others how much during this period the, the so-called spiritual realm was affected by the changes that were taking place politically as well. Yes, you know what you say that, you know, especially the younger people, they uh, start to be more critical and they start to think more for themselves because, you know, the education system in Burma for hundreds of years was just learning by road, you know, whether it's learning the Dhamma or whether it's learning at school. I noticed that with my Burmese friend Mimi, you know, she had studied university and she had learned English but when she met me she was basically almost not able to talk in English because all she had memorized was words and standard sentences and if my sentence was some slightly different you know that that didn't work so she didn't mm-hmm. know what to answer and so yes as you say you know with the opening and with you know people having more opportunity to for information you know with the internet and um, knowing what is happening outside of Burma you know out in the world and yes this has definitely brought a change. Mm, right. So I want to get back to your own track, your spiritual journey. Uh, we left off when you had come from Australia to spend what you thought was a few months and then a temporary ordination and then a few more months and then a few more years. And through the story, you jumped ahead a little bit talking about your started to take on teaching duties and changing monasteries, but we we, we didn't get more of the granular there. So if we go back and just look at that time when you, you, you've you come to Burma, you're learning under Chamie Yeta Seda, and you're staying a little longer, a little longer, and 
then I guess at some point you realize that it's not just extending it by months or years, but it's actually somewhat of a, a firm direction in life, a, a, uh, a, a course direction, a course change or shift from where you thought you were going. And, and I imagine there, there might have been a greater commitment or, uh, or dedication to that development. So when that started to happen, can you take us back there? When did you realize that this was not uh, uh, an experience you were simply extending, but it was actually a new way of life now? And then how did you start to adapt and, and, uh, and, and become familiar with that, that new life and role that you were taking on? Yes. As I said, after three years of very intensive practice, when I realized that, you know, having given up or not having been able to sing and dance, but then realizing that I'm not missing it anymore and that I was actually happier um, than before. So that was kind of a turning point. And as I said, I just stayed on um, in Burma. Um getting more into a teaching position. And it was in 2000 or 1999 that I got the first, um, that I was asked uh, to teach a retreat in Australia. And, you know, I, I was never kind of, hoping or thinking I want to make a career with teaching meditation. Um, but then this invitation came and I thought to myself, well, if they think, you know, they want me to come and teach, why not? And so I had to go via Sayadaw Ujanaka, Chamiye Sayadaw. I told him, um, and kind of, you know, I didn't know how to put it if I had to ask him, well, Sayadaw, do you think I'm able to teach or will you give me permission to teach or whatever? Um, so I just put forth the fact that I was invited to teach and without hesitating, he just said, yes, you go and teach this retreat. And that was kind of you know, the permission or also the confirmation, yes, you're able to do that or whatever. And so I then went and was teaching that retreat, went back to Burma, and then somehow word spread and other centers invited me to come and teach. And so it was there that I noticed, oh, now my life is taking this direction. Right. And, you know, that was fine with me. And, you know, I enjoyed teaching. For me, being in a teacher position was also continuing my practice, you know, just in a different form, a different uh, aspect. But I took that, you know, as a further deepening of my practice. And, you know, more and more uh, with time going on, more and more invitations came. And so uh, with the years, I started to travel more and more, leaving Burma and spending less time in Burma each year. 
which, as I said, you know, was fine. Um, this had become my life. I was happy with that. And so, you know, this is what I'm still doing now, you know, uh, still sharing, teaching the Dhamma, practicing it myself. And I could not imagine doing something better or more beneficial in my life. That's wonderful. Uh, I'm also looking at the particular meditation that you do, and you referenced how you, from a young age, you, you read some Buddhist books initially and, and the motivation that had, and did some Tibetan, did some some Thai Buddhist practice, did some, some Zen even, and settled on a Burmese practice, a Mahasi-based practice, first in Chemyayeta and then moving to Chemyayeng, but all somewhat within this Mahasi lineage and teaching style. So of the, the multitudes of Buddhist practice that you experimented with and practiced at an earlier age, why did you settle on this type of method and technique? What about this drew you to want to dedicate your life to this style of practice? I think what attracted me so much with this particular method or practice, you know, it's the very simplicity of the practice um, of not needing, you know, to have much knowledge about the Buddha's teaching or the Buddhist philosophy, um, just needing a skillful teacher guiding you in the practice that this uh, was enough, you know, so simple, but so so transformative, so um, profound, being able to go very deep with this just very simple approach of being present with whatever is happening in the body and mind. As I said, you know, I had done quite a number of retreats in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition, and usually these retreats, you know, there is lots of teaching, lots of lectures, you know, they talk about the Noble Eightfold Path, they talk about impermanence, they talk about karma, they talk about the preciousness of this human life, and so on. And I must say, actually, I had found this quite helpful because it gave me some idea of, you know, the Buddha's teaching and of the cosmology in Buddhism. Um, you know, and then they also talked about emptiness and so on. But after, you know, some retreats, after some years of doing retreats in the tradition, again, it was like, well, intellectually, I know about emptiness shunyata or I know about impermanence but you know the intellectual knowledge is not enough that doesn't really lead, lead to this deeper understanding it doesn't really lead to a deeper transformation and so it was around that time you know that I was thinking well you know what else would there be uh, in terms of meditation practice, you know, that would enable me to make these experiences of, you call it emptiness or not-self and so on, 
myself. And this was the time I met Sayada Ujanaka and that brought me to Burma. So it was like, yeah, when, when I was open to something else, you know, the method that suited me most appeared at that time. And that's then how I land, I ended up in Burma. Mm, right. you, you said something uh, a bit ago that I find quite significant, and I wanted to, to, I didn't want to stop you in the flow of what you were saying, but I just jotted it down and wanted to come back to it. I think this is a good place to bring it back up. You, you had referenced how the practice in Burma is different from the practice anywhere else, or particularly in the West. And this is interesting because on one hand, it, 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 in some ways, maybe superficially, it contradicts uh, something you said about the transition period, how the, the practice is the practice. Whatever, whatever's going on outside, you're still following a, a basic schedule and timetable and set of instructions. Going deeper, I think there, there does differences and, and understanding does come out. But I wanted to follow up with that statement and to learn in some more detail and, and background. You've spent so much of your life living in the West and living in Myanmar and practicing in both places. And when you talk about what one is able to gain or what you specifically can gain or students that you've worked with by actually making that, and this is, of course, pre-pandemic, pre-coup, making that uh, that decision to spend the money and travel halfway across the world and be in a, a different place to do essentially the same practice. But yet there's something in, in that environment where the, the, the deeper understanding or practice of it become more profound. And why, why do you think that is? What, what about practicing and living in Myanmar it has given you more and you've seen students gain more than doing that same practice in a Western or another country? Yes, this is something, you know, you could say there is something in the air that that is different in Burma than it is, you know, in a Western country when you practice. As I had already pointed out, you know, it's this general understanding that the practice of the Dhamma is the most valuable thing you can do with your life, you know, that's most beneficial. And, you know, to see the people who come, for example, to offer a food dana in the center, you know, they bring their whole family, their family clan, their friends, you know, they stand at the entrance of the dining hall and with hands in Anjali, they, you know, watch the meditators going to the dining hall. Um, you know, they would walk around in the dining hall and, you know, pour tea into your cup or do this. Or when they see that the bowl, you know, with wedges is almost empty, they come and refill it. You know, these little things. Um that kind of just mm, are signs of their respect for what you are doing. You know, you as a meditator, um, even as a lay meditator in Burma, you know, Burmese people show you so much respect and admiration for doing this. 
and especially the Westerners, you know, people know and um, understand, you know, that the Westerners come from far away, spend lots of money um, for traveling there. And then, you know, they have to put up with the heat and the mosquitoes and the food they are not used to and the cold water and so on. But still, you know, the Westerners come and do the practice. And so um, they say, you know, in terms of material things, in Burma, we cannot offer you, the foreigners, much. But we can offer you these facilities that you can practice the Dhamma. And for this, many Burmese people seem to be proud of that. You know, this is something they can give, they can offer, you know, offer also to the world. And so with this understanding, you know, for most of the Burmese people, when you are there in Burma and you're practicing, you notice this, you know, this respect, this admiration, and the value that people put into this practice. And somehow this is so encouraging. This is really uplifting. And for me, um, it has really helped me in times when I was struggling or, you know, dealing with difficult emotional states or mm. having to deal with lots of physical pain. Mm. Um, you know, then I would just be so grateful for the Burmese people, you know, to support the centers with food and, you know, with uh, other donations so that the center can continue to exist so that I can be there and practice. Um, so, as I said, other people, other Westerners who have come to practice, somehow they have made the same experience. They also uh, feel that uh, support and, you know, the value that people place in the practice of the Dhamma. Right. Right. And I think that is, that's a beautiful uh, characterization that you just provided. I think it's also a very poignant one for us to have in our minds today, because of course, in the current situation for, we, we don't know until when uh, with the fallout of the coup that this is, uh, Myanmar is no longer a place for the time being that foreigners can really very easily go and benefit spiritually from these priceless teachings that have been given for so many years, so unconditionally and generously and I think this, this puts into perspective the, the loss that comes with that. Yes, one can practice outside, and this is uh, where, where one practices and grows spiritually is not dependent or conditional on the actual place, and yet there are these kind of underlying lessons and insights and value that being within that society provides that are harder to come by. I think this puts into relief that sense of loss. Uh, of course, this sense of loss is, is nothing um, and barely worth mentionable compared to the people, the Burmese, that are, are living under these conditions and are, are just trying to um, have basic survival and, 
and human rights, but in a conversation about foreign meditators and practitioners and aspiring monastics, this this is another casualty and this is another fallout. And in looking at the present day and, and where we're at, I I wonder what your thoughts are about the current uh, possibility or how you would define engage Buddhism, engage practice. Uh, I'm sure that many of your students have asked you about what's going on and how they can help and how they could be involved. And over the course of the, the year plus, you've had some time to reflect on some of those answers and some of those difficult conversations. Um, I also know there's a couple extremes that foreign practitioners can fall under, one being a spiritual bypass of simply not caring or being engaged and looking at the outside world as and and whatever happens in terms of leadership or, or conflict as, as being uh, apart and, and irrelevant to the actual practice. And, and there's another extreme of people perhaps being too involved and emotionally overwhelmed and, uh, and, and losing their practice for just the, uh, the, the trauma that, that one experiences by, uh, by, by bearing witness or being involved with uh, what's going on right now. So I'm wondering from your standpoint as a very experienced meditator and as a teacher now and as someone who's lived in that country and in society so long, what, how have those conversations gone? What, what have you advised? What have you talked about? What have, how have you come to see what type of engaged Buddhism is relevant or meaningful right now in this situation? This is a very important aspect, as you say, you know, engaged Buddhism. But I think this term engaged Buddhism can be looked at from different angles. So, you know, generally, I think engaged Buddhism is understood in a sense of, you know, um, getting um, some organization or, you know, supporting um, a monastery, supporting um, a school, whatever, or, you know, it can be also like in the, in the West, um, supporting uh, homeless people, whatever. So usually, you know, via an organization or an association, um, doing something good, helping people which is good and necessary but then I also see engaged Buddhism on another level which is you know on a more individual level which means that you know each person who is practicing hopefully you know the practice does something transforms something in that person, you know, the person becomes kinder, more compassionate, sees things more clearly, more patience, more forgiving, reacting less angry, reacting less greedy. And so, you know, then each person on a very small scale can be an engaged Buddhist in really putting into practice what insights or wisdom has arisen through the practice or, you know, seeing more clearly the interdependence 
of human beings, of living beings or, you know, natural resources available in this world. So to be engaged by manifesting these qualities that have been developed in meditation. And as I said, you know, in small ways, you know, engage in one's daily life. So to be um, forgiving and not get angry and upset if somebody jumps the queue in the supermarket or be kind and let another person uh, take the parking lot or, you know, help an elderly woman uh, crossing the street. So in these small ways, you know, be engaged and put the teachings and your insights into practice. Um, with engagement, you know, on a, on a more outgoing level, greater level, especially, you know, having lived so many years in Burma, um, of course, now with the military coup, my heart is bleeding, you know, and I'm so sad about what is happening uh, in Myanmar right now. But, you know, over the years, um, we have been able to help and support um, various people, many nuns, but also lay people in Burma that we know. And this came about, well, or, you know, through the practice in Burma, having, you know, received so much from the Burmese people, all their support, and, you know, they support the meditation center so that we foreigners can practice there. So naturally, there arose in me and in others the wish to give something back to the Burmese people. And this manifested in a first kind of bigger way when Cyclone Nargis swept over Myanmar in 2008, you know, killing so many people, devastating villages and creating so much suffering and the Burmese government you know, basically doing nothing. And at that time, you know, I got contacted by so many people, you know, how can we help? And do you know an organization that um, is reliable, you know, that helps the people in Burma? And, you know, that was difficult. But anyhow, um, I was able, you know, to collect money I was actually teaching a three-month retreat in Australia. And after the three months, end of June, you know, I got so much money. And at that time, you know, it was difficult to send to Burma. So I spontaneously booked a flight and went to Burma to bring all the money. And with the help of the Sayado and the monks, mm -hmm. we distributed it you know, help people rebuild their houses and the nuns uh, supporting them with food and so on and medical help and so on. And so this was basically the beginning of our little uh, project that we call Meta in Action. So, you know, to put Meta, uh, the good heart, into action and 
to help where help is needed. And so with the years, mm-hmm. we have established, you know, connections to many nunneries that we support and set up the medical clinic and so on. And so in this way, you know, um, we are engaged in in giving back something to the Burmese people. And we have this personal contact, so we know each person we offer the support to. And this is something, you know, that is is nice to do for us. We are a group of six people doing this, but also, you know, that we are able to tell the people who offer the money to our uh, little association that each cent really goes to the people in Burma because, you know, we don't take any money for traveling expenses or whatever, but that we are so happy to be the conduct, you know, just to bring this dana, these offerings Mm. to the Burmese people. So I think in respect, you know, to engage Buddhism, it needs both, you know, more uh, on a bigger level, doing it with a project, with an organization or uh, association. But I think the smaller individual level should not be forgotten because, you know, what's, what's the point of doing this practice if it doesn't transform you and if it doesn't Mm -hmm. manifest in the way you live your life. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you've had nearly, it's been nearly 30 years now to the the day, I guess, if you went there in 1992. That's quite a lot of experience you've had in uh, learning and reflecting and growing in Burmese society, Burmese Buddhist culture and monasteries, and you've shared during this interview many of the ways that you've been influenced and grown by that interaction and influence and experience. Uh, Looking at it cumulatively, reflecting on those three decades, and now you're, you're of course, not in Myanmar, yet you you carry it very much in your heart, I'm sure, and, and in your practice. Reflecting on those 30 years and on on what, how that's transformed you, what you've learned, how it's influenced you, not just the teachings, but the actual cultural part, the people, the interactions, the experience of being there, which can't be replicated. How would you characterize what that cumulative experience has taught you? Uh, what, Looking back at those 30 years in totality, what have you taken away as some of the, the primary values and orientation towards life that you can firmly say, this came from my experience in Myanmar. This is something Myanmar gave me that I I carry with me every day to this day going forward. One thing is the openness, the friendliness of the people that really has had a big influence on me. You know, the way of being open and friendly and helpful and to give and to share. I mean, the generosity of Burmese people is just, you know, so big. Um, 
you know, when I started to realize how generous Burmese people are, I felt very ashamed. You know, coming from a rich country like Switzerland, although I was not growing up in a rich family, but seeing how, you know, many people who really are much poorer than I am, I was, you know, are still such a big heart and share the little rice that they have. Um, you know, I was ashamed, as I said, and I really uh, made an effort to become more generous. And actually, you know, just being there in this society, which is so generous, it wasn't so difficult to get the generous bug, you know, and become more generous mm, true, um, true. myself. And another thing that really had a deep impact on me was how much they have a sense of family and a family that is caring for each other. And especially, you know, children taking care of their parents because, you know, in Burma, they have basically no old folks home or nursing homes. There are a few, but not many. But here, like in Switzerland, you know, there are so many nursing homes, old folks home. And, you know, this is kind of the natural thing when people get old and, you know, cannot care for themselves anymore. They go into an old folks home and there they get the necessary care. You know, it's very unlikely that children take care of their parents. But, you know, of course, this all has also to do with Western lifestyle. You know, you have to work, you have to get money so that you can pay your flat and your car and your holidays and so on. But seeing, you know, the respect that Burmese people have for their parents or, you know, for elderly people in general, again, this had a deep impact on me. And I started to question this Western model of putting old people into an old folk home and it was you know during that time that it dawned on me or you know it became clear on me that when my parents would get old and you know needed help you know being frail or getting sick that I wanted to be there for my parents and take care of them and, you know, this was firm. This was kind of my attitude. And then it actually happened that first my mother got sick. She got cancer and died within seven, seven months. So I was in Switzerland at that time because I had my own health challenge with um, a leg that needed to be amputated. And so, you know, I was able to be there for my mother. And at the same time, my father was getting Alzheimer dementia. And so when my mother died, you know, it was clear that somebody needed to be with my father to take care of him. And so I decided to take care of my father to live with him in the house 
and just be there for him. And so I did that for six months of the year. And for the other six months, we hired somebody to stay with my, my dad. And one of my brothers was a lot of the time there too. So, you know, I would teach some retreats. I would not uh, give up completely uh, teaching, uh, teaching retreats. And so for five years, I took care of my dad, who became more frail and, you know, Alzheimer got stronger and um, until he finally died two and a half years ago. I think, mm. or, you know, if I hadn't been in Burma and seen, you know, the respect and care that people have for elderly people, for parents, I don't know if I would have cared for my parents in this way. But I must say, I, I'm so happy, I'm so grateful, you know, that this was, you know, an option or this was what I was doing. And the time caring for my parents was just being on retreat in a different way. Again, you know, it deepened my practice. Mm, that's that's really beautiful. Thank you for sharing that and that and that kind of detail and how your own life story intersected with the lessons you learned mundane and spiritually in Myanmar. And and thank you so much for the generous time that you've spent with us these couple hours to go over this story and share three decades worth of experiences that the golden land has given you and is still providing today as just a a last question to reflect on and thinking about your time in Myanmar that we like to ask uh, meditators and people who've been there for spiritual practice. Uh, what is your favorite place to meditate in Burma? Which, which place holds the, the dearest memories if you could be transported there for an hour or a day? Which, which place in the country would you like to go to have a, uh, have a meditation sitting now? That's a good question and actually not such an easy one. <laughs> um, you know, there are so, so many beautiful places. Um, I have traveled quite a bit, you know, kind of pilgrimages going to different parts yeah. Yeah. in Myanmar, in different places. Um, You know, usually meditation centers, you know, they are in, in the cities, Yangon or Mandalay, or places, you know, like Sakai or the forest center in Mobi. And with all these meditation centers, you know, they are not really quiet, peaceful places or, well, peaceful, but not really quiet. You know, there is the noise from the loudspeakers, you know, from the worldly music that they play on loudspeakers or when they recite Buddhist texts, Abhidhamma, Patana, and so on. And so, you know, my yearning had always been to be in Burma, but in a place where there is no much, not so much noise around. And... 
Finally, when Sayadaw Indaka established a center in Upper Burma near Pyongyang, that was really in the countryside. It was far enough away from villages that, you know, it's quite a quiet place. It's, you know, in the hilly area overlooking the hills. So this is actually quite a favorite place of mine. You know, it's conducive for meditation there. The climate is nice. It's not so hot as down in Mandalay or Yangon. Of course, you know, there would there are nice places more, you know, in the wild. But you know, there are no no monasteries nor centers uh, there in these more remote places. Or, you know, there are monasteries or centers, but as foreigner, you are not allowed to be there. Mm-hmm. So that's mm-hmm. another dilemma, you know, as a foreigner. Mm-hmm. You cannot just go anywhere and settle anywhere where you like, but, you know, the government kind of is watching you where you are. Sure. Yeah, well, I hope that you and others will be able to reach that place again before long, but it, at least it's, uh, you you have the practice wherever you are. And, uh, and thank you for sharing that practice. Thank you for the time that you took today to share your story. I, I, I appreciated it so much and getting to know you more as a, as a person and not just as a, as a teacher. And I think a lot of your other students and the wider listeners as well will get much out of it. So, so thank you so much for taking this time. And thank you for giving this opportunity to share about my life, my practice, about Myanmar, the Myanmar people, and so I hope this is for the benefit and well-being of all of us living beings. And may there be peace in the world. Sabi sata sukiata nam parihantu. Sabi pana avirahantu. Sabi pana abiabajahantu. Sabi pana Thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode. As regular listeners are aware, we often remind our audience about our nonprofit mission, Better Burma, at the end of a show. Truth be told, fundraising is hard work, and I can personally attest to the fact that it's really no fun to keep asking for contributions. Yet the situation on the ground in Myanmar is so distressing that we continue to do so on behalf of the Burmese people. What is most helpful at this time are recurring donations, which help alleviate both the stress and time involved in fundraising. If you're able to pledge a certain amount per month, our team can plan around having at least a consistent minimum amount to work with every month. If you would like to join in our mission to support those in Myanmar who are being impacted by the military coup, we welcome your contribution in any form, currency, or transfer method. 
Your donation will go to support a wide range of humanitarian missions, aiding those local communities who need it most. Donations are directed to such causes as the Civil Disobedience Movement, CDM, Families of Deceased Victims, Internally Displaced Person, IDP Camps, Food for Impoverished Communities, Military Defection Campaigns, Undercover Journalists, Monasteries and Nunneries, Education Initiatives, the purchasing of protective equipment and medical supplies, COVID relief, and much more. We also make sure that our donation fund supports a diverse range of religious and ethnic groups across the country. We invite you to visit our website to learn more about past projects as well as upcoming needs. You can give a general donation or earmark your contribution for a specific activity or project you would like to support, perhaps even something you heard about in this very episode. All of this humanitarian aid work is carried out by our nonprofit mission, Better Burma. Any donation you give on our Insight Myanmar website is directed towards this fund. Alternatively, you can also visit the Better Burma website, betterburma.org. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-B-U-R-M-A.org and donate directly there. In either case, your donation goes to the same cause and both websites accept credit cards. You can also give via PayPal by going to paypal.me slash betterburma. Additionally, we take donations through Patreon, Venmo, GoFundMe, and Cash App. Simply search Better Burma on each platform and you'll find our account. You can also visit either the Insight Myanmar or Better Burma websites for specific links to those respective accounts or email us at info at betterburma.org. If you'd like to give in another way, please contact us. Thank you so much for your kind consideration and support. Yeah.